0: Welcome. This is Christy Sells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and our topic today on the 3rd of April, 2009, is palliative care and hospice and a focus on quality of life. And joining us today as our primary guest speaker is Dr. Pat O'Malley from Massachusetts General Hospital. And Dr. O'Malley is... Been experienced in pediatrics for over 25 years and is the new director of the pediatric palliative care team at Mass General. Uh, She's really an exceptional person. I'm excited to welcome her today because I feel like she um, has helped me to really see how the idea of palliative care is one of support and. Dealing with mitochondrial disease and the uncertainty of the diagnosis and the unpredictability of what can happen day-to-day, year-to-year, is really scary, and I hope that what we talk about today helps to bridge the gap between maybe some fears and some misunderstandings about hospice and palliative care to thinking more about that this may be a tool that can really help us as we manage to live our life on a daily basis. and care for those that we love who have
1: mitochondrial disease.
0: So, Pat, anything else you'd like to add to that
1: introduction? Well, no, thanks. Just uh, thanks to you, Christy, for the chance to talk about palliative care with this group, and and especially for the list of very thoughtful questions that you and your families had assembled. And, and I do have a confession, which is that although I did my fellowship training with adult patients, my heart and experience really have been and continue to be pediatric. So if I lapse into pediatric talk, please forgive me. I will try to frame my responses to be helpful to both child and adult folks with mito.
0: That's great. And I also would like to just mention that today's meeting is held in loving memory of Christopher Clark, who we lost to mitochondrial disease within the last few months and whose family remained very dedicated to helping him have the best, Focus on quality of life possible every day. So, Pat, why don't we go ahead and get started? And I think the first overall question is some definitions. If you could talk a little bit about what is hospice versus what is palliative care and, and
1: what that means. Sure. And this question uh, uncorks the pretty long answer, so bear with me. Uh, I, I think many people have heard of hospice, uh, and I think many people have not heard the term palliative care before, and if they have, they oftentimes have an image of something that's hmm, like the Angel of Death, wearing a long black robe, carrying a sickle and an hourglass. Uh, and in fact, my way of thinking, palliative care is really about living, not about dying. And prospects in the United States is best thought of as an insurance benefit. So, I think it's helpful to look at some official definitions. There's an official definition of palliative care from CHIPS, the Children's International Project on Palliative Hospital Services, that applies just as well to adulthood as it does to kids. And that definition is palliative care is the science and art of lessening physical, psychosocial, emotional, and existential suffering. I personally still find that a little gloomy, and I'm working on a marketing makeover for palliative care, which acknowledges the suffering but focuses on augmenting comfort and joy and autonomy and safety and function and meaning. I, I will confess it's sometimes a hard sell, the hard sell to clinicians as well as to patients and the cameras. but we all at some level subscribe to the goals of living long and living well. Palliative care is usually introduced when hopes for one or both of those goals are challenged, but we can still hope to live as long and as well as possible. So, palliative care is appropriate for any child or adult facing a lifespan-limiting condition. And at its best, I think it should be putting all of our medical knowledge and all of our technology to the service of enhancing our patient's comfort and joy and autonomy. So, I think it's not about dying, but rather about living. And I personally think it could begin in utero. Um, But I would like to delve into that definition a little bit more because there are at least three... Implications that occur to me with this definition: first, that palliative care is inherently a multidisciplinary endeavor with a team concept, and that starts with the family as the unit of care, and the patient and the family as pilots of the plane, and they may invite as their navigators doctors, nurses, child life, chaplaincy, social work, psychology, pharmacy, dietary. In fact, any specialty that might have an impact on the patient's quality of life should be part of a palliative care team. Second implication is the palliative care is really guided by goals, goals of the child or the adult patient and the family. And those goals might include cure of the disease. They also might include avoiding a premature death, extending life, maintaining or improving function, relieving suffering, enhancing the quality of life, maintaining patient autonomy, getting to go to the prom getting to toilet yourself, achieving a good death, survivor care, and support for families and loved ones who have had a loss, and I think particularly um, appealing in mygo diseases is partnering with patient and family to make the best decisions between difficult choices when um, so much is unclear and uncertain. So a palliative care approach, I think, can benefit patients and families, whether the overall goals of care are to cure or to prolong life, or to maximize quality of life or to ease the pain of bereavement. And they can definitely be concurrent with or an alternative to curative care. Whenever somebody's faced a serious illness or a change in health status, their goals may shift and things may get reprioritized. You may feel differently about what's important to you once you face a serious illness. And so this is to be expected in the life of any child or adult with a chronic illness. I think it's helpful to think through these goals explicitly you whenever know, there is a change in health or function status or in the change in the setting of care or in the treatment preferences. So, if you're going from healthy to ill or ill to healthy, from home to hospital and back again, or wanting to consider that multivisceral organ transplant or deciding to forego it, these are all events that call for a re-examination of goals. And This examination and review must often take place in the setting of ambiguities. Particularly in pediatrics, we cannot always predict the course of the condition, and very often we can't even clearly predict the impact, the benefit, or the burden of a proposed treatment. Is that enteralism e going to help you or kill you? So these ambiguities can make it terrifically hard to get our bearings, and it makes the teamwork part and the partnering partnering with families I think really essential. Palliative care won't always clarify those ambiguities, but the metaphor I like is that, that we can keep people company while we're walking in the dark. We can also share in the burden of decision-making in these very amb- ambiguous settings, knowing that we can only make the best decisions we can with the information we have at the time, and there is no crystal ball with this. There's a third implication, and that is that palliative care takes the ability to reclaim creatively, and here's is where I learn from... Uh, I think my Mido family is special all the time. For example, one of our families whose child is only intermittently able to take food by mouth wanted to make sure that he was still able to be part of the family mealtime. time. So when all he could take was ice chips by mouth, it would freeze up these different imaginary food shapes and let him pick whether he was having ice chip roast beef or ice chip chocolate cake. So that's reframing to find the fun and the joy. But I think this reframing is sometimes important for the entire team. So, for instance, when a family decides to limit a potential life-extending treatment like breathing on a respirator, they may feel or their clinicians may feel that we're just deciding to let the child die. But in reality, I think this may be deciding to let the child live with as much meaning and comfort as possible and as free as possible from what may be burdensome technology that extends but doesn't affirm their child's life. So that's reframing, I think, to find meaning and dignity. So that's a word on side of care. What about hospice? Well, I have an image for hospice, too, and that used to feature a nun in a white towel leaning over the bedside of a dying patient. And certainly, much compassionate care is given to patients on hospice. But I've found that it's much more practical to think of hospice as a health insurance benefit. More specifically, as a Medicare reimbursement benefit for patients with limited life expectancy who agree to forego the goal of care, of cure. So, forget the nines and the white towels. Hospice benefits under Medicare have pretty strict rules. They um, expect their patients to have a limited life expectancy. Uh, Not that the patient has to agree to die within six months, but more specifically, a physician has to certify that a patient is likely to die within six months. When a patient elects hospice benefits, they then discontinue their standard Medicare benefit. So, that has a big impact on choices of services available to them. They agree to uh, aim for palliation or management of symptoms rather than a cure. And they need to have in the home an able, available, and willing caregiver who can give the hands-on care or pay for it privately since hospice doesn't pay for block nursing. That can be a real showstopper for a lot of pediatric patients. This model was derived from adult cancer patients who often come to a point in their cure-directed treatment where cure is no longer possible, and when the days they have left become pretty predictable, so not always compatible with the needs of adults with non-cancer life-limiting conditions like emphysema or congestive heart failure or adult mito, Um and rarely compatible with pediatric needs unless all those criteria are met. For instance, in pediatric hospice, tends to work best for children who are dying of cancer, precisely because that's the population of kids most closely matched by the uh, adult model. So hospice and palliative care, I would say some but not all patients under palliative care will end up on hospice, and hospice care is one part of palliative care, but by no means the biggest part, certainly not pediatrics. That's to start with definitions. I promise to be shorter. (laughs) I
0: I think you're speaking very thoughtfully, and I I appreciate the the allusions and then the alternatives to those images as well. So, um, I... A question I heard from some families when we were probing into this topic is Is how do you know when a person with Mito, a child or an adult, is hospice-ready or ready for palliative care um, because it does seem that it implies an agreement
1: not to treat. Okay. Um, so let me try to make a clear distinction again between palliative care and hospice care. In the case of being hospice-ready, I think, yes, there may be a philosophy to limit treatments. And, again, for me, the best way to understand it has been that there's an expectation that the cost of a patient's care will fit within the slender budget of hospice. So, for instance, return to the hospital um, won't fit in that budget, and that may mean that a patient is discharged from hospice. Using expensive treatments, even if they no longer cure, but may simply be being used to reduce symptoms quite like Radiation or giving blood products, these may have to be negotiated with your insurance agency and covered as a separate carve-out. There is some fine print wiggle room, and in fact, once signed up for hospice, if you change your mind, you're simply discharged from hospice with some red tape and some paperwork. But, But I've found that thinking about hospice as a medical insurance benefit is the best context to understand the ins and outs of it. When a patient of any age is actively dying, hospice care is simply wonderful if there's a willing caregiver at home who can provide the minute-to-minute care or enough personal finances to provide private nursing or residential care. To be palliative care ready, however, a child or an adult center needs to be facing a lifespan-limiting condition with no implication that they're foregoing any treatment but simply acknowledging that there may very well be very difficult decisions that will surface over the course of dealing with that condition. The American Academy of Pediatrics, for instance, supports thinking about pediatric palliative care very differently, with an entrance criterion as simple as a child who's not expected to survive to adulthood. The AAP is one of the first agencies supporting involvement of palliative care from the time of diagnosis of a life-threatening or lifestyle-limiting condition, although we're beginning, I think, to see this in the adult world as well.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the idea of the unpredictability of Mito, that uh, I have experienced it myself with my own daughter, and I've seen um, families and and experienced conversations with adults who describe the unbelievable... Peaks and valleys that can be associated with this condition, and that sometimes in other disease states we assume that when you hit your low, that's that's the low and you'll never go back to where you were before. But with mitochondrial disease, that's not always the case. You may um, be failing, your organs all decide to you know uh, wreak havoc on your body all at the same time. But then a year later person, whether it's an older child, is really doing much better. So how does that fit into the concept of being part of
1: um, palliative care? Well, I think the pattern you described, uh, Christy, is is very common in pediatric palliative care, not just with cases of MIDA, but with um, children facing other chronic lifespan-limiting conditions. And um, so a child whose lifespan we know is likely to be shorter than the average bear who faces true life-threatening crises in their health, but also has the potential to come back to what is for them their normal life, or to come back with some additional burdens of treatment or limitations of function, but still able to give and get love, still able to give and get joy in being alive. And adults with mito may have these very same ups and downs, but these are precisely the sorts of situations where palliative care can be helpful because I think our, our, we see our role a lot of the time as keeping company, traveling the path, and helping people think through the decisions and the reprioritizations of their goals that may happen with any of these health drawdowns.
0: In your experience, does participation in that palliative care, uh, it, it sounds like it's very beneficial to the patient and the family, but I would expect that there's a fear that it may negatively impact the perception of how to treat the patient. If the caregivers on the team don't understand that palliative care is really about enjoying life, they may assume that it's more like hospice and that it's a decision not to treat. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, I I think this is a question that is trained with a good deal of insight. And I think the patients can get dinged for adding a palliative care specialist to their team. I actually often warn families that once there's a, a palliative care note in our electronic record, they may have staff coming up to them asking them if something has changed, if their child has DNR. Um, there, there is a kind of guilt by association with palliative care. But to be fair, I think there can also be a certain benefit, even a cachet to being under palliative care. We can we can use the palliative care, the school systems or rigid head nurses, and when we do that, hearts are sometimes softened and so often sometimes are rules. But I think more importantly, increasingly I I feel that clinicians are understanding that palliative care operates as a kind of interpreter, um, interpreting family's hopes and fears and values and goals to the clinical team and interpreting choices and recommendations by clinicians to the family. And this is... This is clearly a valuable service for both sides. And I think oftentimes clinicians are not comfortable naming the things that families most fear, the, the what-ifs that it might be helpful to talk about to help families prepare. What if she got so sick that she might die? What if the only way he can manage these secretions is to undergo a trach? Um, what if uh, we need to rethink his caloric intake to aim for comfort and not for growth? These, these are... Um, topics that are sometimes hard for the primary clinical team to address because they fear that the families may think they are giving up on the adult or the child to suggest withholding any treatment. So I think palliative care can help create the space where a conversation about these most difficult and painful but really critically important things can be discussed without anybody feeling that they're giving up, just making good plans. So hopefully they won't need to use any time That's very helpful. It
0: sounds like the person could potentially be a part of of care then for a long
1: period of time. Yes, I've, um, I've followed patients for years. I'm sure Ashley has had the same experience. And, you know, we can offer recommendations for symptom management, which can be useful at any time. But it's, it's actually wonderful to have the ongoing relationship because you do have more of a chance to develop the mutual trust and respect and understanding that, that uh, it's helpful to have before there are any end-of-life decisions that have to be made.
0: And it sounds like a good point there is that you don't necessarily need to wait until you are recognizing maybe that the symptoms are aggregately getting worse and there are more frequent hospitalizations and that you're really recognizing a decline before being a part of palliative care. Is there some value in being part of palliative care when um, the MITRE patient is really at their best baseline so that you can get to know the family in that way?
1: Exactly. And we get to celebrate the successes. Um, we get to uh, enjoy the good times as well. And we get to be helpful, I think. Uh, in those times when
0: there are reversals. I think it's challenging because of the uncertainty of Mino, and because in many other diseases, certainly the medical system has been taught to think about the treatment. And so then as patients and families, we often feel that we have just been displaced because we don't have a treatment plan and so we're just excused. <laughs> And yet, we're still living and living for many years. And in some cases, I think that there needs to be differentiation between the idea that the mitochondrial disease may not be, quote, treatable, but many of the symptoms, even the symptoms, say, with dysautonomia that are confusing and troublesome, can be treatable. Or as organs stop cooperating, those symptoms can be treatable, Um How do you find the balance on that?
1: Well, I I think it it involves first um, clinical clinicians recognizing that there are indeed some things that we can't fix. But there are a whole range of things that we can fix. And a palliative care really aims to manage the symptoms in a way to optimize the patient's comfort, joy, function, their ability to play, their ability to work, um, their ability to make meaning in their life. And that's the case regardless of whether the underlying condition is treatable or not. So in that same vein, if a new therapy
0: or idea for treatment for mitochondrial disease was announced tomorrow, if you were a part of palliative care, would that somehow make you ineligible in any
1: way? Uh, no, it would not. And um, palliative care is goal-directed care really based on the wishes and the goals of the patient. So if a new treatment becomes available, a reordering of goals gets to be possible. Uh, and it may be uh, exactly the time to to uh, celebrate with your palliative care team that you're able to uh, look for a cure.
0: I think that the logistics are always important. So I think conceptually, you've done a wonderful job of explaining the idea. But logistically... Where does one get started, and how does one become a part of the team or even bring up the idea? And, um, and, and it's challenging sometimes because in Boston, we tend to have a pretty good base, but not all patients have a really great local um, home base that understands their mitochondrial disease. Could you just give your perspective on that?
1: So I think maybe the place to start would be to uh, check with your local pediatric or adult tertiary care center to see if they have a palliative care service and then just investigate, ask for an informational um, investigation into what they would say. I, I know that at uh at MGHFC, General Hospital for Children for Children or Children, we would welcome any child with Mido into our cold and, and want to act as a consultant to the primary subspecialists who follow the child. Um, And I suspect that that's available in many more places than than Boston. Uh, We have actually a wonderful um, resource in Massachusetts, which is really quite visionary uh, and not available in other states, and that's the the, uh, Department of Public Health um, Program on Pediatric Palliative Care, which offers many of the same services that uh, the hospice does, but um, has a palliative care philosophy in the sense that You don't need to forego curative care. You don't need to collect hospice benefits. Um, You don't need to be uh, promising to die in a short period of time. Uh, And it's uh, something that goes through the the State Department of Public Health as opposed to through one's private insurance. But outside of Massachusetts, um, I would say that touching base with your local tertiary care center uh, to see what is available in terms of a palliative care team, either an adult team or a pediatric team and ask for an opportunity to talk with those folks.
0: Is this a conversation that folks would have with their primary care doctor or a specialist? See. What do you think?
1: Uh, I think uh, you could certainly try either the primary care physician or the specialist. Um, and depending on their experience with palliative uh, care, they may or may not be startled by that request. Um, if you wanted some information, uh, you could go directly to the nearest palliative of care service. Um, I'm, uh, in- increasingly, we have a uh, network across the country of pediatric subspecialists. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recently created a uh, uh, section on pediatric palliative care and uh, that's the place where, uh, I think that's a network where we could certainly help members of my direction find uh, the closest services to them. Um, And for adult services, uh, I think that uh, those are much more um, common in any busy general hospital. So uh, I think easier for the adult folks to find a palliative care service than for for, uh, pediatric patients.
0: And we're almost ready to open up for questions, but I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the commitment of the patient and the family or the care provider team to be a part of um, this
1: that may be different? Um, Well, the model that I'm most familiar with is the way we operate here at MGHSC, and this may not be the case everywhere. I I know it's the way the PAC team operates, uh, but we're a consultant service. So we don't supersede the primary team, but we join them. And the commitment of the primary provider team shouldn't be any different in terms of, uh, of uh, the impact of adding palliative car care to the to the roster.
0: Any, you, you've already done a great job describing this. I hope that it feels to everyone who's listening a way that that palliative care is something that is more hopeful instead of scary. Uh, I just ask for any. Closing comments on that, and then we'll open up for any additional questions. Uh,
1: Well, I hope I've described it in terms of hope today. Um, And I think the ways that I think about it are are this, that that we act as interpreters. Um, We help manage struggling symptoms that may be interfering with uh, a child or an adult's ability to do what it is that they want to do with their life. And that we can create that space for families to discuss folks and peers without feeling that they're giving up. We're, we're the what-if team. And I, I think um, that it's the kind of care that lets a person's spirit shine through, whether they're an adult or a kid.
0: That's a great thought. I like I like that concept a lot. So, any other thoughts? Um, are we ready, Pat, to open this up for some questions from people who are listening?
1: Yes, I, I feel like I've A lot of talking, so I'm happy to have other questions or have.
0: You did a great job, and so let me unmute everyone here. Bear with me one second. Okay, so we should all be able to um, speak up now. So, um, additional thoughts from anyone or questions, uh, as well as I invite Karen or anyone who has experienced this personally to share their experience. And Ashley, if you'd like to jump in and add anything to that discussion. Um, from your experience with the PAC team at Children's, please feel free to do so as well. So we just tend to jump in and and uh, act as if we were having a conversation together uh, right here virtually. So comments or thoughts or questions?
2: I have a, a couple of questions. The first one is the definition of levels of care, um, like level one, level two, or What what does that mean? And the second thing is, um, in a living will, can a patient themselves indicate that they wish palliative care or hospice care or is the language with with respect to either of those? That's a great question from Jean, who's in Canada.
0: So um, Pat, first question was about, is there a
1: definition for levels of care? Um, there may well be, but I don't know what it is. Um, I I have not heard that expression used before. Levels of level one or level two care. Um, Ashley, I don't know if you have. Heard of it. I haven't either.
2: That's what they use in Canada, I guess.
1: Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I don't know. If, I don't have any experience with that. In terms of the living will, you should yes be able to say that your your wishes uh, include wanting to have
0: palliative care or hospice care. Okay, thank you. Other questions?
1: Thoughts? This is Karen, Chris's mom. I know for years, Christopher was, quote-unquote, hospice-eligible, and we did not pursue that because we didn't want the stereotypical end-of-life cares. And we did have a team of home care providers, nurses, therapists, et cetera. And once palliative care became an option instead of hospice care, that was when we jumped on board and worked with another team of people that were in adjunct the services we already received. And the difference in the two terms and what they were able to provide made a huge difference in our lives. In, in what way, Karen? In that with hospice here, we didn't want to discontinue the comfort care measures. He was traced and and we didn't want to just pull that from him because we saw that at this point as a comfort measure. And a lot of the medications he was on because of Mido are questionable in the medical community whether they're actually treating, prolonging, or just throwing band-aids at something we don't understand, and we didn't want to pull any of those because we thought we were obviously receiving some benefit from them. Mm -hmm. And And that can be a very difficult negotiation with hospice, Um, but uh, that's because hospice derives from this adult model that is um, really occurring at a time when uh, there, there isn't any anticipation that any further treatment is going to be helpful, except comfort care, um, and comfort care is definitely defined by, by the beholders, not the, not the providers. Um, but uh, exactly what you described, Karen, I think is, is the benefit of palliative care is that, if, if there are goals to optimize, that's where we put our, we. Um, We are not trying to hasten death, extend life beyond hope, but we're trying to make the most of every day that we have um, and, and to keep someone as comfortable and as functional as they possibly can be, regardless of what that takes.
0: If you exactly. took away the mito- if you took away the mitochondrial disease, I think everyone is trying to make the most of every day that they have. And then, when you have mitochondrial disease, you may have just more challenges in accomplishing that. And so, palliative care can help you to do that and understand that. That's really a gift. Um, I think Other questions
1: I think, too. It also made a big difference in the waxing and waning of the disease process itself, because some days functioning was much higher than others. It wasn't just a steady decline and then goodbye
2: mhm
0: so. and Karen, when you and I talked, we also talked about how there were periods where uh in Christopher's case, he improved for a while significantly yeah. and and so I think mm-hmm. that again is a real important defining point that. That um, even I have misconceptions about that you need to be declining to be a part of this process. Um, I think that one of the most common challenges I hear from patients and families is that there's a lack of support and understanding in the medical community. And we've done a fair share of banging our head against the wall and trying to figure out how to improve that. And one venue to do that may be the palliative care model, which – just helps with explaining how it is true that there are a lot of unrelated things going on. <laughs> but, you know, it it can be validating, I hope, for the patient. I know help with our thoughts.
1: pediatrician. Yep. Yeah? And I would with our pediatrician who has been wonderful and with Christopher having been hospice eligible for so long, even he would sit back and scratch his head and, you know, I just don't understand or not want to treat certain aspects because of the myo and this is a terminal process. And all of this helps him understand that we can still treat the person and the individual symptoms while not losing sight of the fact that he has a terminal illness. That's very well said.
0: Other thoughts, any questions and comments? Hi, um this is Dawn Murphy
1: and um I had a question about can you hear me? It's okay you go go ahead. Okay. Um my daughter Kayla,
0: she is four and a half and she has um you know, she's been severely affected since birth and
1: um she has a trach and she has a ventilator when she's paying because of central apnea. Um she's had a history of low heart rates, and most recently on her apnea downloads, it's been showing that her heart has been stopping for a few seconds at a time and so her we talked about some options and we tried caffeine, and that didn't work and You know, the only other option really was a pacemaker, which we decided was, you know, just too invasive right now for her. So, you know, at this point, her genetic doctor told me that her heart could stop at any time. And, um, you know, we do get nursing. Um, You know, she does get a lot of respiratory illnesses throughout the year. But so I'm just wondering... Based on all that, I mean, we are working with our genetic doctor, and I guess in a palliative way. Is there anything else that we should be doing? Or I don't even know if our hospital has a palliative team or if, if the genetic doctor really acts as that um, because he said, you know, to call him at any time if, if she seems to be getting worse. So, so that's a a, um, a real worry to have to be living with every day. Uh, sometimes, because of the um, intensive monitoring that we do, we uncover things that, um, in fact, might be self-resolving um, and take care of themselves, but we know about them because the child is on the monitor and is being watched. And it, it can sometimes create um, huge worry and um, and decision making and things like that. So I, I think um, that might be a situation. Um, and it sounds like sisters <laughs> is a very powerful one, um, where the two of you could talk about whether palliative care services would be helpful in in thinking through this. Hmm. Yeah, so I there just know a recommendation for a, another medication or something like that, but but uh, another set of eyes. Um, helping you think through what it is that's most important to you um, and Mm. Kayla at this point uh, might be helpful. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know what else they would be able, I guess, at this point, since we do have nursing at home, and, you know, what else the palliative care team would really be able to do at this point, because we've talked about other medications, and I guess there was only one, and... (laughs) it would require regular withdrawals and it has no, it's being really to be able to do that. So, um, I don't know. I I think that the idea of kind of carrying a case like that is that you
0: are Um, being Kayla's advocate and, and you must be exhausted. And so the hope is that, a palliative care provider would help with that, and would help to be that her advocate with you, okay? Thinking the same way that you
1: do,
0: backing you up on those decisions when you're too tired just yeah. to, to talk about it anymore. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so I would I would pursue it and see what you can find. Pat, uh, is it pretty common for every children's hospital or university medical center to have a palliative care team, or is this a relatively new concept?
1: I'd say it's, it's relatively new. Uh, children's is, is one of the more venerable programs at this point. Uh, I think the PAC team is now 10 years old also. so. Um, but the, um, the field itself, pediatric palliative care, really is undergoing tremendous growth and... Um, uh, very positive growth, I think, and so increasingly, I think you'll find that children's hospitals will be um, will be developing programs like this if they don't yet have it. Okay. Ashley. Do you have anything to add,
0: just in general, to the discussion um, while we're wrapping up here?
1: Well, first, I want to say thank you to Pat for and you for including us in on this conversation and Pat you did such a fabulous <laughs> job describing and explaining palliative care. The only other little piece that I was going to add in there is a home program, um, PD Pathways that I'm not sure if families are aware of. It, it is in Massachusetts again. Um, they're based out of North Quincy um, so it's more in the North Shore and South Shore areas. Um, they provide care but they also uh, have nurses and um, primary care physicians and social workers and chaplains that are involved to help with extra support as well. So that's another, they do more of the outpatient basis of palliative care too. Um, so that, that's just another resource for families to think about.
0: Do you, from your experience, Ashley, is that exclusive to Massachusetts or the? There might be something like that in other states as well. You know?
2: Um,
1: I'm not sure. Let me ask, um, some of my team members are actually sitting here with me. Um, let me ask them, hold on one second. So, PD Pathways is specific to Massachusetts, but I think other states um, oftentimes have uh, either independent or uh, affiliated programs that, that uh, will provide the uh, Um, that aspect of the home care, Um, and many of the children's hospitals will have uh, that kind of community, outpatient, inpatient.
0: And when trying to find that in the area you live, um, it sounds like the strategy would be to go to the university hospitals or the major tertiary medical centers as a starting point. Would you agree, Pat?
1: Yes, I, I think that would make sense, and I, I think also, Christy, I'm, I'm happy to offer um, the, uh, the resource um, through, through MITRE, um, the resource to the AAP network that's developing. I'm, I'm happy to put out queries for particular regions to see if there are resources, or see what the best resources in that area might be, if that would be helpful to anybody individually.
0: Okay, that would be helpful. So we, we can talk about that and put a, um, a link to either email you know, me or you to follow up with that on the summary on the website. Uh, and just so you know, if you wanted to share this with other people, I will post the audio recording of today's call as well as a written summary about what um, we've talked about and Dr. O'Malley has talked about so that you can refer back to it, and, and it may be the type of um, conversation that you share with people who are primary care providers who would benefit from having a little bit more of a broader view of how this can help. Um, we have
2: time for one
0: more question or comment, if anyone has anything else to add or share.
1: Christy, this is Kathy Rivers. Can I just say something to Dawn? Sure. Is Dawn still here? Are you, Dawn? Yeah. I am. Okay. So I think we're both in Maryland, and I've used hospice through Hopkins at Maryland, so I, they do not have a palliative care team, but we can, at, in another venue, share the information. Okay, great. Because it was hard to dig it up back when I did it. <laughs> so, um, So, you...
0: in, in that case, Kathy, I would ask you, if you would mind, if you go to the org slash forum, and that's the the online um, chat room, if you will, on my site. Mm-hmm. And just put a little post about about that. Okay. Then Don can find that, and you guys can talk to each other as well as um, then it's there for anybody else who lives in Maryland and is thinking about the same thing.
2: Okay. Uh, does does the Warriors of care have a bank of equipment that people can tap into?
1: Bank of equipment, um,
2: uh, like for example, the the um, air beds, um, that kind of stuff. Um, hospital hospital beds that are yes.
1: That you know, depending on where you find your palliative care provider, if they're hospital based, you know, um, they will be working with uh, your insurance and with the um, possibly with case managers either on the in or out patient service to. Um, to locate the best way to get those materials for you, and uh, um, I would say we do have an interesting array of equipment that, that we can think of to help solve uh, a, a number of the logistical problems at home, and things that, that uh, really do add to the quality of life and to the comfort of both the caregivers and the child.
0: Great question, team. Thank you. So. Uh, Dr. Maui and Ashley from Children's and all of you who've called in, thank you so much for um, open mind, great questions, excellent comments and thoughts about the process, and uh, I hope that you'll help me to individually go out and uh, help this to be a way that we can access more support for patients with mitochondrial disease by spreading the word about the, the process. And I will be posting a summary on the website Um, in the same place on the blog where you found the information for today's style-in, You could also always just search palliative Care up in the search box off the homepage, and it would take you to this information as well. Because I have some information from Children's and a good article that Ashley sent me that I'll post there, too. So we'll have a few resources to really look at moving forward. Any other closing comments, Tab, that you'd like to
1: say? I'll just thank you for the opportunity to talk with you all be part of what I hope is a a good way to honor and remember, Christopher.
0: Thank you for that, Pat. We'll do a quick mention of our topic for May. I have Dr. Jim Dykins, who is currently in the U.K., um, working for Pfizer in investigating specifically mitochondrial toxicity from certain drugs. Um, He's interested in mitochondrial dysfunction and the related cell toxicity and uh, is part of drug safety R&D. Then, again, with Pfizer. Has a lot of mitochondrial research experience but is also the author of a book on drug toxicity for mitochondrial disease. So I'm very interested to include him in our discussion and that will be the first Friday in May, um, same time and same telephone number. And as long as you're subscribed to the email, then you should get an announcement about that. So please. Be sure that you're subscribed to get the updates, and uh, we'll look forward to welcoming him in May. And again, please help me to join in thanking uh, Pat and Ashley and, and Karen and Jean for sponsoring today's call, and for all of you for your support. I
1: hope this was helpful for you.
2: Hello, everybody. Thank you for for uh, presenting this. It's something that we in Lakeview have needed uh, to have the information about. Um, so, thank you for coming and delivering it so capably. Thank you, thank you for that. So
0: thank you so much, Dr. O'Malley and uh, like I said, you will look for this um, information to follow up on the website and uh, I hope that everyone has a wonderful weekend. Thank you Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, bye.